Zechariah 12, 10 to 14. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. Amen. The prophet Zechariah turns his attention to what will happen in the future in reference specifically to the death of Christ and the aftermath of the death of Christ. The death of Christ and then the aftermath, that is, the repentance of the inhabitants of the city and the tribes. Repentance as a consequence of what they have just done to the Son of God or Son of Man, to Christ himself. Verse 10 is about Christ. God prophesying by Zechariah 500 years before Christ came into the world, the fact that he would die, be pierced for our sins. And then in 11 to 14, he describes the bewailing of this fact, the bewailing and acknowledgement of the fact that they recognize their guilt and they repent of sins. The mourning that he is describing in 11 to 14 has to do with mourning over sin. And the sin is the one that they, uh, against the one whom they have pierced. Verse 10. Verse 10 begins by saying, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. Firstly, when it says, I will pour out, the I, the subject of the verb to pour out, is God himself. It is God who is speaking. God has to be speaking. It's not the prophet speaking, nor anyone else speaking. It is God who is speaking. And this starts at chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1, which says, The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel Thus declares the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Verse 4, 2. For in that day declares the Lord. The Lord is the speaker. And this continues to verse 10, that God is the speaker. Now, having asserted that fact, we'll see later why this is this is significant because it says they will look on me mourn for him we'll come to that but after looking at the earlier part of the verse and i will pour out on the uh, on the house of david and on the inhabitants of jerusalem pour out what or whom the spirit of grace and of supplication 
When it says, I will pour out, this is one of the many promises of God to pour out his Holy Spirit on the people. When the prophets, the priests, and the kings were anointed, they were anointed with oil, olive oil, and that anointing was a symbol or a sign of the Holy Spirit's endowment on the individual, on the man installed to the office, prophet, priest, or king. It was a symbol or sign, a type of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon them. Exodus chapter 29, Exodus 29, verse 7, in reference to the priests. 29.7, Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Take the anointing oil to pour on the head to anoint. Psalm 133, Psalm 133, verses 1 and 2. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. There too, in reference to the priests and their installation to office. In reference to the prophet, we find an example in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 16, 19, 16. Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Elijah, and here we have an example of both, anointing Jehu, king over Israel, and Elisha, prophet over Israel in the place of Elijah, because he will soon replace Elijah. In this way, prophet, priest, and king. But when God pours out his spirit, it is in order to fulfill the offices that God has intended. And in this way, he is going to make the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to be endowed by the Holy Spirit to fulfill his purposes as prophet, priest, and king. Because not only is Jesus the perfect prophet, priest, and king, but he also makes us, in a sense, prophets, priests, and kings, in a spiritual sense. We become a kingdom of priests and a royal nation, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And also, in terms of being prophets, to the extent that we preach the truth and are persecuted, we are just like the prophets. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5, 10 to 12. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is predicted here, but it's not the only place in the Old Testament where he is said to be poured out or will be poured out Isaiah 44, Isaiah 44, verse 3, 44, 3. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land 
and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. The Holy Spirit is compared to water here, just like he is in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. He's compared to water, and God will make a parched, stony, dry ground of the heart, the human heart, into a fertile field, because he's going to pour out the Holy Spirit upon the heart and change that heart from being stony, arid, worthless, parched into being fertile and lush and green, producing good fruit because his spirit has been poured out upon them. Let's also go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel the prophet. Ezekiel 39:29. Ezekiel 39:29. And I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Well, when God pours out his spirit, what is the result? Ezekiel 36 explains, 36, 26 to 27. Ezekiel 36, 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. When God gives the new heart and the new spirit and removes the heart of stone, like the stony ground of Isaiah 44, verse 3, and replaces the stony heart with a fleshly heart, meaning a tender heart, He doesn't mean flesh in the sense of sinful flesh. He means flesh in the sense of tender, sensitive to the things of God. This happens only because God puts his spirit within us and causes us to walk in his statutes. And then we become mindful. We become careful. We become desirous of observing the ordinances of God after his spirit has been poured out. Upon us. Now, this promise in chapter 12, verse 10, is on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. House of David and inhabitants of Jerusalem. When we reach verses 11 to 14, we will explore the fulfillment of this prophecy in terms of the people involved, the people who experience the outpouring of the Spirit and repentance, and faith in Christ. He says specifically in 12.10, the spirit of grace and of supplication. Firstly, you may have in your Bible a footnote that says a spirit of grace instead of the spirit of grace. Though grammatically speaking, from Hebrew to English, it is possible to say a spirit of grace in this context, grammatically speaking. However, contextually speaking, we should say the spirit of grace, meaning the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, not merely an influence or a good leading or a good attitude, 
but it is the Holy Spirit's work in us. There are a couple of reasons for this. One reason is found in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10 and verse 29, where we read the apostle say, and has insulted the spirit of grace, and has insulted the spirit of grace. Well, from where did he derive that phrase? The only place in the Bible where this is found, only other place, is Zechariah 12.10, the spirit of grace, meaning the gracious spirit who, because of the grace of God, changes our dead heart and makes it alive so that we have faith in Christ and repent of sins. This is what he means by the spirit of grace. Now, that's in Hebrews 10.29 compared to Zechariah 12.10. But also, if we are to use a synonym of this word grace, we find that this is true of the Holy Spirit elsewhere in the Old Testament. If we use a synonym, not the exact term, but a synonym. And we go to one example in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms and... We find in Psalm one forty three, verse ten. Psalm one forty three and verse ten, where it says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. He is called your good spirit, a synonym of grace, your good spirit. Further, Nehemiah 9, verse 20, Nehemiah 9, 20, and you gave your good spirit to instruct them. Nehemiah 9, 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. In this way, it shouldn't be a surprise since these synonyms are used of the Holy Spirit in these two places for us to find that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Grace. He's both good and He's gracious along with the other attributes of God. He possesses them. For these reasons, we should, contextually speaking, take this to be the Spirit of grace, that is, the Holy Spirit. Further, he's called the Spirit of supplication. To supplicate means to petition to God, to ask God, to call on Him, to make a request of Him. To supplicate means to do so. And this is teaching us the sequence. No one calls upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Romans 10, 11 to 13. No one calls on the name of the Lord to be saved unless he is first endowed or regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And when he is regenerated, then he cries out to God 
in faith and repentance. The Spirit must first work in the heart to convert the heart, make it born again, and when it is born again, it is alive, then the living heart reaches out to God in faith and repentance. This is the reason he's called the spirit of supplication. The spirit of supplication. Now, this is what Nicodemus should have known. This is what Nicodemus should have known. When Christ confronts Nicodemus and actually chastises him, saying, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? You're supposed to know because he thought Jesus was talking about physical rebirth for salvation, for eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus emphasized the opposite. He said in John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And this phrase, born of water, may better be rendered born of water, that is, the Spirit, like Isaiah 44, 3, where the Spirit is compared to water. And even in John, John 7, 37 to 39, the Holy Spirit is compared to water there as well. Then, also, in John 3, verse 6, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Verse 8, also, So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, when one is born of the Spirit, then he supplicates to God in faith and repentance. If he is not born of the Spirit, he will not supplicate to God in faith and and repentance. That's the sequence. That's the chronology. That's the order of salvation, as it is known among theologians. Ordu salutis in the uh, in the Latin, ordu salutis or order of salvation. That's what we're talking about here. The spirit of supplication must first penetrate and break the stony human heart. Only then can faith and repentance take place. Now, this is emphasized in the Bible and in our lesson here. Why? Because the Christian world typically, 99% of the Christian world typically takes it in reverse. They say, because of free will, we have enough goodness and grace in us to reach out for God And then God makes up the difference once we first reach out to Him in faith. But that's not how it works. We can't reach out because we're dead. Our hearts are stony and worthless, unfruitful to God. Okay, then verse 10 continues by saying, So that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And then it says, and they will mourn for him. God speaks in the first person at the beginning of verse 10. He speaks in the first person using the different pronoun me. That's also first person pronoun. First person, I and I, we, me and us. Second person, you. Third person, he, I'm sorry, he or she, him or her, or them. 
First person, second person, third person pronouns. Why does God say I and me? Because God is saying that he himself will be the one pierced. But then he resorts to the third person. It says, for him. Weep bitterly over him. Why is it that it happens that way? Well, we shouldn't be surprised because Moses does this plenty of times in his writings, referring to himself in the first person and then in the third person. Jesus refers to himself in the first person and then in the third person. An easy, quick example of this, and it happens many times with the words of Christ. He says in... John 3, John 3, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you. Verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you. Verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you. Verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you. Verse 12. If I told you earthly things... And you do not believe. How shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? All first person. But then verse 13. And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. Now he goes to the third person. He says, He who, uh, he who descended from heaven, Son of Man. He who descended, he is third person, and son of man, referring to himself, but using a third person phrase, son of man, the son of man. This is how Christ speaks here. He also speaks this way in Mark eight thirty-eight. Mark eight thirty-eight. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Christ is the speaker here, and he's referring to himself when he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Those are first person. And then he says, the Son of Man when he comes in the glory of his Father. Those are third-person references, but he's referring to himself. In that way, we should not be confused in Zechariah 12.10, because sometimes commentators, they bend over backwards to try to make this make sense. They cannot believe, on the one hand, that God himself would be pierced, and on the other hand, they can't believe that the Son of God is speaking and prophesying this to Zechariah the prophet before he actually comes into the world and it takes place. They find all of that hard to believe when it shouldn't be difficult to believe. It shouldn't be hard at all to say that Christ is the speaker here who is God himself, meaning he possesses deity, he has a divine nature, but also 
he is implying here that he will have a human nature. Both a divine nature, but also a human nature, which the Old Testament and the New Testament are prolific and profuse with many references to his divine nature and his human nature. And this is one such example where the divine and the human are brought together in one verse, Zechariah 12.10. Now, you, you may say, well, how do we know about the human nature part? Well, it says, so that they will look on me, whom they have pierced. Who are the they? They will look on me, whom they have pierced. They are the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Literal, real people who will look on Christ whom they have pierced. They will have thrust a sword into his side. This is what he's saying here. To pierce has reference to that fact. Firstly, Let's see, Psalm 22, 16. Psalm 22, 16. 22 is a messianic psalm. Throughout, one of the most clear references is verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which are words that Jesus quotes. And even verse 8, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him because he delights in him. His mockers said that to him, said that to Christ. And then also we come to verse 16, 22, we could read 22, 16 to 18, and you will notice some familiar expressions. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: 16, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Perhaps verse 18 is clear. We know that this is what happened to Christ. It did not happen to David. It happened to Christ. Verse 18 corresponds to Matthew 27, 35, and Luke 23, 34, and John 19, 24. Verse 18 does. In terms of verse 17, the fact that he can count all his bones means that not one of them is broken. He can count all his bones because not one of them is broken. And this we find fulfilled in the book of John, chapter 19 and verse 36. 1936, which Psalm twenty-two sixteen, 16, Exodus 12, 46, Numbers 9, 12, and Psalm 34, 20, all either explicitly or implicitly are the scriptures for John 19.36. For these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. 
John 19, 36. And while we're there, verse 37 also. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced, which is our verse, Zechariah 12, 10. John 19, 37 quotes Zechariah 12.10 in reference to the piercing. One more place in the Old Testament is Isaiah 53.5. Isaiah 53 is undoubtedly a prophecy of the coming Christ and his death. And it says in Isaiah 53.5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Isaiah says he was pierced through for our transgressions. John 19.37, John says... It was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ, which is also quoted in Revelation 1.7, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Revelation 1.7. John the Apostle knows this prophecy of Zechariah very well and cites it twice. John 19.37 and Revelation 1.7. But... Some skeptics say there was no such piercing, there was no such impaling, there was no such hanging of criminals in the Old Testament. That was not a practice of execution until the Romans, the critics say. It was not a practice until the Romans. So how in the world could they know anything about it? Well, if they are prophets, God's telling them. That's the simple answer. But historically speaking, we have more than that. We actually have examples of hanging. We have examples of impalement on trees or wood. We have these examples in the Old Testament. An example of hanging. Genesis 40, verse 22. Genesis 40 and verse 22. We'll, we'll first read 40, verse 19. 40, 19. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat your flesh off you. And then 22, the fulfillment. But he hanged the chief Baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. So hanging, we find it right there. Hanging on a tree. Also in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23. Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23. And this passage is quoted in Galatians 3.13. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that the Apostle Paul 
says Christ was made a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Well, Deuteronomy 21:22. And if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. There. One who is under a curse is hanged on a tree. And also, we go to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra. When the king, when the king of the Persians, and this is the Persians, we saw the Egyptians practicing hanging in the book of Genesis 40. And now in the book of Ezra, chapter 6, the Persians and King Darius. Notice what he says. Now, this is a threat to anyone who disrupts the people of Israel or molests their worship of their God. Okay? And it says, verse, we'll pick it up at verse uh, 9. Ezra 6, 9 Ezra 6, 9 to 12. And whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, and lambs, for a burnt offering to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil, as the priests in Jerusalem request, it is to be given to them daily without fail, that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I issued a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. And may the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it. So as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem, I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence." The threat, whoever violates this edict or decree, a timber drawn from his house, and he shall be impaled on it. So this concept is not foreign. It's not foreign to the Old Testament. It's not foreign to the Gentile world. And in addition, like we said at the first because it's a prophecy, even if it were completely new and different, it's still a prophecy, and the prophecy is that this impalement or crucifixion will take place in this way. Okay, but when it does happen, when it does happen, because the Holy Spirit is poured out, the Spirit of grace and supplication, now the last part of verse 10 all the way to 14. The last part of verse 10 to 14. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. 
what's this? What's he describing here? Well, first he compares it to the morning of a firstborn son, an only son or beloved son, and bitter weeping over him. That's the kind of mourning it's first described like that in verse 10. To compare this, let's see where we have examples. Firstly, that God compares his people to a firstborn. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Israel is my son, my firstborn. That is God who adopts Israel to redeem Israel. And also, Genesis 22. Genesis 22, verse 2. And he said, and God said to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. The only son, the beloved son. Now, only does not mean strictly that he was his only because he had Ishmael. But he means it in the sense of the beloved son. The beloved son. The only beloved son. Then, we find as well in the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6. Book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, and verse 26. We're describing this familiar terminology of mourning for a beloved firstborn son. And then we'll see its fulfillment. 626. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Mourn as for an only son, a lamentation most bitter, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. Amos, Amos chapter... Amos chapter 8 and verse 10. Amos 8, 10. Then I shall turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. And the, the end of it will be like a bitter day. All of these familiar expressions are here. Amos 8.10 But not only does he compare it to that, he compares it in verse 11 to an incident that had already occurred. Now this incident in verse 11 has reference to the days of Josiah. And this would have happened about 100 years before Zechariah the prophet. Zechariah, about 500 B.C., and King Josiah, he was killed about 609 B.C. 
He was killed in battle. But what happened when he was killed in battle? Let's see. Second Kings, Second Kings, chapter twenty-three. Second Kings, chapter twenty-three and verse twenty-nine. Twenty-three, twenty-nine. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. And King Josiah went to meet him. And when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him at Megiddo. He killed him at Megiddo. But this King Josiah, King Josiah of all the kings of Judah, he was probably only second to David in terms of righteousness, second only to David. And he was so righteous, this statement is found and describes him and no one else in all of the Old Testament. Second Kings 23, 25. Second Kings 23, 25. And before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might According to all the law of Moses, nor did any king, nor did any like him arise after him. Those words in twenty three twenty five are taken from the greatest commandment in Deuteronomy six four and five, and all three expressions are repeated here, and true of King Josiah. No one else, King Josiah. So when a righteous king, and we know if we read 2 Kings and even 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 34 and 35, and the book of 2 Kings 22 to 23, we find many of the righteous deeds of King Josiah. Not only in his own life at a young age, but also how he preached repentance to his nation and destroyed the idols of the nation in a way that no one else ever did in Judah. And even in Israel, he even went to the territory that the Assyrians had control of in the north, in the land of Israel, the kingdom of the north, and destroyed idols there too, and returned to Jerusalem. However, it says he was killed in battle. And for this, and the response of the people, we go to 2 Chronicles 35. 2 Chronicles 35. And we go to verses 24 to 27. 2 Chronicles 35, 24. The beginning of this paragraph describes his death, that he went to battle, like it says in Second Kings. So then 24 picks up. Verse 24. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in the second chariot, which he had, and brought him to Jerusalem, where he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Then Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah, and all the male and female singers speak about Josiah in their lamentations 
to this day. And they made them an ordinance in Israel. Behold, they are also written in the Lamentations. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his deeds of devotion as written in the law of the Lord and his acts first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Not only did Jeremiah, but it says the, the male, all the male and female singers speak about Josiah in their lamentations to this day which day would have been in the days of Zechariah. This is a lamentation over Jeremiah. Now, where was he killed? It said Megiddo in 2 Kings 23-29. And Megiddo is mentioned here in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 11. And therefore... When it says, like the morning of Hadad Ramon, in the plain of Megiddo, it's meaning in the broad plain of Megiddo, the area is called Megiddo, the plain of Megiddo, there is a more specific place there in that plain called Hadad Ramon. It's the name of a place, Hadad Ramon. And sometimes the Bible will use an abbreviation for a longer name, just as we do in our common language. We use abbreviations for long names. And this may be the same as the place mentioned in Zechariah 14.10. 14.10, which says, All the land will be changed into a plain from Gaba to Ramon south of Jerusalem. So the in the plain of Megiddo, a place called Hadad Ramon, a more specific place called Hadad Ramon, that's where the mourning occurred when King Josiah was first slain. And that was such a memorable time because it was such a godly king. Everyone mourned for him, all the righteous mourned for him, like Jeremiah did. They all mourned for him, and it was a memorable time because it was a bitter weeping, a bitter mourning, as though over a firstborn son. But this firstborn son, Jesus Christ was the firstborn son of Joseph and Mary, correct? Matthew 1, 18 to 25, and Luke 2, 1 to 22. He's the firstborn son of Joseph and Mary. And we say firstborn because they had other children, according to Mark 6, 1 to 6. Well, now we pick it up at verses 12 to 14. 12 to 14. And the land will mourn every family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. There are two main, or three main groups here, three, a general group, then the Davidic group, and then the Levitical group. 
a general group, Davidic group, Levitical group. It says, verse 12, the land will mourn every family by itself. And then 14, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. That's the general group. But then there's also the Davidic group, the house of David, and then specifically in the house of David, his brother, uh, sorry, not brother, son, his son, Nathan. This we note from 2 Samuel 5.14. 2 Samuel 5.14, that David had a son named Nathan. But we also find it in Luke 3.31, in the genealogy of Christ. Luke 3.31, it says, The son of Nathan, the son of David. David had a son called Nathan. This is not Nathan the prophet, but this is Nathan the son of David. And Luke 3, 23-38 is a genealogy of Christ, which means that there will be those in that lineage who mourn over their sin in crucifying Christ. We'll see that fulfilled We'll see verses 12 to 14 fulfilled in New Testament verses. Okay, then also in 12:13, the house of Levi and the grandson of Levi named Shimei. This we find in Numbers 3, verse 18. Numbers 3, 18. 18. We'll read 17 and 18. Numbers 3, 17. These then are the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. Three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, sons of Levi. And these are the names of the sons of Gershon by their families, Libni and Shimi. Libni and Shimi. And of those two sons, Shimi became more prominent and that's why Zechariah mentions Shimei in Zechariah 12, 13. Well, why does he describe it like this? The men and then their wives by themselves and the families by themselves. Because he's describing sincere and genuine, genuine private mourning. He's, not, he's trying to emphasize that it's genuine because it's private. If they first individually and among one another repent of sin, then it only will make sense, it only has validity if there is a public consequence or a public confession after that. First it has to be private and then it's public. But if there, it does not happen privately, then the public part is a sham. That's why he's describing it this way. Okay, now the fulfillment. We find this fulfilled in the book of Acts. Yes, in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, after Peter preached, notice what we find here. 2.37 to 41. Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It says that they were pierced to the heart. And it also says that they were to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this also happens by the call of God. Verse 39. As many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. That is the effectual internal work of the Holy Spirit. To call people to himself. It is about salvation. Verse 40. And there were added 3,000 souls. Because the spirit of grace and supplication was poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who are there gathered to hear the sermon that Peter preached. Remember, in our studies of the book of Acts, we said that that sermon would never in any place throughout history ever convert 3,000 souls according to modern methods. Uh, well, if... We adopted modern methods. We could save 3,000 souls. We could save 10,000 souls just like that. But if we used biblical methods like Peter did, it would not save 3,000 people unless the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. Then it would save. Then it would save. Now that number of 3,000, it increased in Acts 4, verse 4. 4-4. Four, four. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. How so? Because of the outpouring of the Spirit. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. 6, 7. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. It says that the disciples are greatly increasing in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that slew Christ. Now many of the inhabitants are repenting and believing in Christ and including the priests. The priests were descendants of Levi and Aaron, and Zadok. They were the Sadducees. So this means many of the Sadducees were becoming obedient to the faith. In fulfillment of Zechariah 12, 10 to 14. So then, Zechariah. Zechariah has predicted the death of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, and repentance for forgiveness of sins. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.